Good morning, church. Uh, as Juanita said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Really glad to be with you. Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and excited to join you on this first Sunday of Advent. Uh, as Calvin said already, Advent is really important time for us as Christians, a time to remember and reflect upon the first coming of Christ as well as to fuel our anticipation and excitement for Jesus' second and final coming. This year, as we proceed into Advent, we're going to be using the Revised Common Lectionary uh, for our Advent Sermon Series. You may not know what that is. It's just a, a historic collection of scriptures that are built around the seasons of the church, uh, and which is utilized by countless churches all over the world. And so it's exciting for us to join with many other churches in preaching through these, these same glorious passages of Scripture. Each week we will be centering the sermon around one of the four major themes of Advent. Uh, as we just heard about, uh, this week is hope. Uh, the four weeks will be hope, peace, love, and joy. And so without further ado, as we dive into our first sermon series, I invite you to stand uh, as we give attention to God's Word, this week we'll be in Jeremiah chapter 33, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 16. This is God's Word. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The prophet Isaiah says the grass withers and the flowers fade but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would now speak to us through your word. As Juanita prayed, Lord, give me the courage to, to get out of your way so that you might speak through me, that your words would speak to our hearts and that we would be transformed as we encounter you, the living God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. True confession here, I am not much of a gardener. I do have a garden, but I struggle to make things grow, which is a problem. If you need proof, you should stop by my house and check out my rose bushes. Uh, there's nothing pretty about them, which is pretty hard to do, to make rose bushes ugly. In fact, I, I thought I lost the bushes a few weeks ago. I hadn't really been paying much attention to them, and I pulled into my driveway and looked over, and, and all I saw was a bunch of brown, leafless branches. And it was in that moment that I realized I'd finally done it. I killed the rose bushes, all of them. And so I sulked for a little while, but after 
a few days, I swallowed my pride and I began planning a trip that's pretty regular in my house, a trip to Home Depot to replace the plants that I had killed. But something stopped me right in my tracks. Upon closer examination, amidst all the brown deadness, I saw these tiny green buds poking their little heads out. Somehow, utterly in spite of me, the life that was inside the plant had endured. Although malnourished and neglected and really doomed from the day I put them in the ground, these plants had overcome. Our text speaks of something eerily similar. The metaphor that Jeremiah uses is that of a stump, the remains of an old dead tree, the quintessential picture of agricultural failure. And yet Jeremiah declares somehow out of this useless old stump springs a fresh shoot, a new branch. Somehow in the midst of what appeared to be utter and complete death, life had remained and is now bursting forth. And this suit, this shoot, is supposed to symbolize something awesome, the reversal of things. It's, it points to this new life that's bursting forth in the presence of what appears to be death, which is what hope is all about, isn't it? To hope is to look beyond what is in front of you, no matter how dark it might be, and, and to look to what can be, what might be, or, or, or maybe better yet, what will be. Our text this morning is a message of hope delivered to people like us who desperately need to hear it. And in this message, there are really four lessons, four instructions for us in terms of how to find hope when it seems so difficult to find. First, we must not hope in circumstances. Secondly, we must hope in promises. Third, we must hope in the promiser. And then lastly, we must hope in the promise. So let's begin. Lesson one, we must not hope in circumstances. I want you to think back to a time in your life when things were so bad that you felt like it couldn't possibly get any worse. And then it did. That's pretty much the context that Jeremiah is writing in. The northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen and the Babylonian army is now marching towards Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom, and, and it's clearly not looking good. The remains of the city are all that's left, and as this last-ditch effort to survive, the people literally tear down their houses and the palaces, and they throw all of the rubbish against the city walls to hopefully create a barrier that would keep the Babylonian army out. It's not looking good. Things are really bad and they're about to get worse. The rose bush is brown and, and leafless. It's pretty much dead. And it's into this context that Jeremiah pins chapter 33. And the first thing that I want to point out, something I really appreciate about this text, is that Jeremiah doesn't at all try to clean it up. In no way does Jeremiah seek to soften the blow of the tragedy that has already happened and it is about to happen. There are no platitudes here. There's no heartless reminder that God works all things together for the good. 
Jeremiah allows the tragedy to be tragic. And I think that's our first takeaway this morning, and that is that to have hope doesn't require that we deny the pain and sorrow of the moment. I think that's a timely reminder for many of us. For many of us, the holidays aren't all wonderful, but rather they're full of the sting of unmet expectations, of loved ones that are no longer with us, of loneliness that we can often ignore and deny, but in these moments feels unavoidable. And the encouraging thing for those of us who are hurting is that you can actually have hope in this Advent season without pretending that the pain isn't real, without pretending like the leaves haven't fallen off and that the the bush is not bare. But how? Well, the key here is that Jeremiah refuses to allow his circumstances to be the authority in his life on what is to come. I know that's the logical thing to do. It makes perfect sense to assume that after I put my finger in the light socket and I get shocked that doing it again will produce the the same result. It makes sense to assume that if every time you apply for a new job, you get denied in the first round that no one wants to hire you. It makes sense to assume that if every time you take the risk of trusting someone relationally that they end up letting you down, that you are not a desirable person. It makes sense to assume those things, and yet the bold challenge of the Scriptures is to suspend logic at times and to not allow circumstances and experiences to determine our expectations. The Bible calls us to look to something else. But if not circumstances and experience, then what do we look to to guide our expectations about what is to come? Which brings us to our second lesson. We must hope in the promises. Look again at verse 14. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. If you've spent much time in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you know that promises are kind of God's jam. The Bible is full of them. What's interesting about a promise is that built into each promise is a choice on the one who hears it. You can choose to believe that which is promised, believe that it will come to fruition or not. Seems pretty simple, and it would be if there was only one promise in question. The truth is, though, in life, I think you can resonate with this, we're normally faced with multiple promises, promises that are often in direct conflict with one another. What do I mean? At our men's retreat a few weeks back, the speaker talked a lot about this ladder that most of us are on. It's a ladder that's rooted in performance. And on this ladder, you're constantly looking up and looking down, observing how you are doing compared to those around you. And you're asking the question, am I above you or below you? And everyone's ladder looks a little different, different color, different size, but they all function the same way. Maybe for you, your ladder has to do with your vocation, with your work. Or maybe for you, it has to do with your schooling, your grades. 
Maybe for you it has to do with your spouse or your lack thereof or your kids or how much money you have in the bank or where you live or what car you drive. Regardless, regardless of what color your ladder is, we all use the ladder to determine our self-worth. We're ranking ourselves based upon our performance compared to the performance of others. And you know what I'm talking about. You've been using the ladder even today. Even in church, you've been looking around and comparing yourself to those sitting next to you. We all do it. The reason I share this with you is because the reason that we cling to this ladder is because the ladder has made some promises of its own. The ladder has promised us that if we get to the top, it will make us happy. And if we're honest, most of us normally believe this promise. That's why we cling so tightly and we work so hard to get to the next rung. The problem is the latter is a liar. It's as if there's a thick cloud that hinders us from seeing to the top, but we just know that at the top, right through those clouds, is joy, is happiness, But if you are lucky enough to get to the top, to break through the clouds, you'll discover that above the clouds is not the top, but just more ladder. The point that I'm trying to make is that our choice is not to believe the promises of God or nothing at all. What makes it so hard is our choice is to believe the promises of God rather than the promises of this world. The promises that are proliferated through all the screens, through all the social media, the promises that ladder summiting will truly satisfy. And so the question that follows is why should we? Why should we trust in God's promises over the promises of another? Which brings us to our third lesson we must hope in the promiser. And I am intentionally putting emphasis on the word the, much like when you refer to the University of Alabama in recognition of the fact that the University of Alabama is the premier university in the state of Alabama, as was evidenced this past weekend, although not as obvious as I would have liked. In the same way we want to emphasize a certain promiser as the premier promiser, the primary one we must put our hope in. But how do we know which promiser to put our hope in? And the answer lies in the fact that the promise is only as good as the integrity of the promiser. We must trust in the promiser who has the integrity to keep their promises. For example, we know politicians make promises all the time. But we don't often get our hopes up because we've learned that there isn't a whole lot of integrity in Washington. My kids promise me all the time that if I I give them this or that, that they will never disobey me again. And they mean well, but there's not much integrity behind those promises either. Which is why it is so important before we look at the promise itself to examine the integrity of the promiser that's found in Jeremiah 33. And what's interesting about our text is that there's kind of two promisers in question. First, there's Jeremiah, and then there's God. Let's look first at Jeremiah, 
Why should we trust this prophet? Well, if you had been reading through the book, you would have observed that uh, from the beginning, Jeremiah has been making promises to God's people, but not the good kind. This is from chapter 5. He says, People of Israel, declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not, do not understand. They will devour your harvests and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, devour your, fi- your vines and fig trees. With the sword they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. That's not the promise that God's people were hoping for. Now what's significant is that Jeremiah, in delivering these promises, knows full well that that this is going to have consequences on his life. It might cost him his life. In fact, Jeremiah 33 is written from prison. Jeremiah is in prison because the, the king is so mad about the message that Jeremiah has been delivering. It's hard to discredit the promises of someone who says these things to their own detriment, isn't it? These promises of Jeremiah produced great suffering for him, but not only that, they proved to be true. This nation did, in fact, come and devour God's people. Jeremiah was a person of integrity, and he should be trusted. But there's another layer here beyond Jeremiah Because the promises are delivered by Jeremiah, but they don't actually belong to him. They come out of Jeremiah's mouth, but their their substance is owned by another. Look at verse 14. There's this key phrase here that whenever it shows up in the scriptures, we should pay close attention. And that phrase is, declares the Lord. Meaning that the words that are about to be said are not Jeremiah's, but God's. And so the, the character that is ultimately in question is not Jeremiah's, but God's. Can God be trusted? Is God a person of his word? Can we trust that he will deliver on his promises? I've never been to a psychic before, and my apologies if there are any in the room. This is not going to be favorable. Uh, But best I can tell from what I've seen on TV and what I've seen in the movies is that the idea of a psychic, of a fortune teller, is to deliver fortunes that are as general as possible. Like something is really bad is going to happen to you sometime this year. And you do that so that you're not on the hook for something specific. You know, if, if the person had said, you're going to get hit by a bus on January 10th, and, and if that doesn't happen, you know, they have to find a new job. But God doesn't function like a psychic. God makes hundreds of very specific promises The Bible calls these prophecies, and these prophecies are in reference to all sorts of things, like the ones in our text about the Babylonians coming and conquering Jerusalem. But there's one subject that God makes the most promises about, and that is the Messiah. The Messiah, a person who is to come in the future, an anointed person who comes to rescue God's people. And scholars debate the exact number, but it's safe to say that God makes over 300 specific promises about this Messiah. Promises about where he will be born, to whom he would be born, where he would live, what what kind of animal he would ride into Jerusalem on. Ridiculous, right? All kinds of details about how this person would suffer and how he would ultimately die. 
Promises made hundreds of years before this person was even born. God put himself on the hook like crazy, didn't he? And what's crazy is that history has proven that God has delivered on every single one of these promises. It's pretty amazing. And the point of all these prophecies, they exist for the purpose of motivating us to trust the words of the promiser, to prove that the promiser has character, has integrity, that God is trustworthy. The question for you is, do you believe that the one who gave us this book is worthy of your trust? Because if you do, then you're ready for the final lesson on hope. If we trust the promiser, then we can have hope in the promise. Again, emphasis on the word the, because the Bible is full of God's promises, over 7,000 for that matter, but there's really one promise that is preeminent above all the rest, and that promise is verse 15, that a righteous branch will spring up from the seemingly dead stump, and that this branch must be the source of our hope. This branch is the source of our hope because it is the only thing that goes right at the source of our hopelessness. Last night, my wife and I were watching a special on the Ahmaud Arbery case, one of the really two really high-profile cases that have been all over the news the past few weeks. And regardless of the outcome of these cases, you can't watch and not walk away with a keen awareness of how much the world is not as it should be. Which is precisely why hope is so elusive in this moment. Because when we look around, we plainly see how sin has messed everything up. But then what's worse, we look in the mirror and we plainly see how sin runs so deep inside of us. But there is hope. Although the bush looks dead, there is still life hidden inside, waiting for just the right moment to burst out. Those days are coming, Jeremiah says, days that will be so different than it is now. Look again at verse 15. The text says that when that day comes, when the branch arrives, this branch will execute justice and righteousness meaning that it will deal with the very source of our hopelessness by engaging the sin problem both inside and out, by executing justice, meaning putting to death all that is wrong in this world, by executing righteousness, meaning putting to death all that is wrong in us. This is the promise of the branch, that he will reverse the reversal that has so corrupted all of creation As one commentator says, sorrow would be turned to joy. Whatever has been undone in justice would be redone in mercy. God would put everything back in its place. That's what the promised result will be. Verse 16, in those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. This Advent season we celebrate the coming of the righteous branch. The coming of Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord our righteousness. And we celebrate because his coming brings us hope, hope of salvation, hope that everything that is wrong in the world will be put back to right, hope that the people of God will dwell securely in the land once again. There are a lot of reasons in this moment 
not to have hope. But the good news is that all those reasons are trumped by the greatest promise of all. The promise that out of the stump a branch will spring forth and that in his coming salvation comes with him. Church, the call of of Jeremiah 33 is to be the days are coming people. That's what God has called us to be. People who refuse to submit to the authority of life's circumstances, who reject the promises of this world, and who look to the one who is infinitely trustworthy and who has made a promise that is glorious beyond our wildest dreams. The promise to come to our rescue, to reverse the reversal, to put all things back to right through the life, death, and the resurrection of the Lord, our righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. I know it looks like at times that the bush is dead, but take heart. A righteous branch has sprung forth and is breathing new life into all creation. Church, he is making all things new. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need to be reminded of the promise. And we need our faith in you, the promiser, to be strengthened, to be girded, to be fueled, so that in the midst of such ugliness, such brokenness, such hopelessness, that we would find hope, hope in the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, the fact that he came And that he will come again. And he will put all things back to right. And he is making all things new. God, may we believe that more and more each day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.